0: Hello and
1: welcome to the official podcast of Palette Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life.
0: Hello, we have a very exciting conversation ahead of us. This is Ilona Thompson, of course, with Palate Exposure, and I'm here today with Clark Smith I've been super excited about this conversation. Clark and I met many moons ago at a Pinot Noir Symposium in Anderson Valley, and that's how I discovered his book, actually, The Postmodern Wine Making, which we'll talk about a lot. And then uh, we judged together in Sacramento at the California State Fair. Um, He is so admired by his colleagues. It's palpable when there's a group of people and I happen to be the observer, the fly on the wall. Um, Yes, he gets a lot of adulation and for very good reasons. Um, He's a scientist, he's a winemaker, public speaker, he's a mentor, he's an author. Um, There's lots more titles um, that belong in that sentence. In 2016, he was named the Innovator of the Year. And in 2018, he was named the um, most admired, I believe, 40, in the group of the most admired, 40 winemakers. So huge honors. Um, He worked very hard to earn them. Um, And um, of course, his book that I mentioned, Postmodern Winemaking, is really um, a frame of reference for many, many people in the industry um super interesting read if you're a wine nerd and even if you're not i promise it'll make you smarter so welcome clark
1: (laughs) (laughs) hi alana it's a it's a real pleasure to be here and i i I appreciate everything you said
0: of course so we'll dive in as i like to do we're all from childhood said one very smart smart french author so we'll we'll go there first i know you're from the east coast right
1: yeah yeah i think you know, I, I'm from New Jersey. That's where I got my attitude, and uh, <laughs> it doesn't always play all that well in California. But I, you know, in 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 Jersey, telling the inconvenient truth is kind of a sport. So that shows up in a lot of things I do. I'm a little bit of a contrarian, um, and uh, and I I love telling the truth, especially when it pisses people off.
0: See that's what I love so much about you. I, I think <laughs> that what I should have introduced you as is, you know, the best sense of humor in the wine industry. <laughs> and we believe you. We need it. We take ourselves way too seriously most of the time, so somebody needs to tell us to just do something else. And you're such, such a voice.
1: That's an interesting thing to say. I, I, uh, I did pursue a life sciences career, and there was a point at which I decided really shouldn't be a cancer researcher
0: because
1: I, you know, you you have this flask and you just picture dropping the flask and you've just killed, you know, a hundred million people that could have had that cure right there. So I thought, I think I'll just make wine because in the end. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's not cancer curing, right?
1: And yet you're right that it is, I think wine is sacred and, and it's, it's something that we take very seriously, and uh, I believe that wine is is, is uh, too important to be taken
0: seriously. That is totally quotable. <laughs> that, that might have to be written down and quoted over and over again. Of course, I'll give you credit. Um, so, childhood wine. I think I
1: stole it. Don't bother. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's let's face it. Nothing is new anymore. Ever. So it's safe to assume that we're constantly stealing, but it's supposed to be the sincerest forms of flattery, right? Boring.
1: Well, let's delve a little bit more into what wine really is. Uh, It's a terrible uh, thirst quencher as a rule. I don't even think, the kind of wines I make anyway, I don't even think they're beverages. Uh, Ouch. (laughs) Ask, no, really, they're not for Drinking and 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 I believe me, I didn't sacrifice my career to just make something that will get somebody high. Mm. Uh, in fact, the alcohol is really kind of annoying. We're looking for something more profound than that. Um, like Ben Franklin said, that wine is proof that God loves us and desires us to be happy. That's what I want to put in the bottle every time. I think most winemakers do. Uh, if we compare it. Well, let's let's back up a little bit. Um, people should be concerned about the things that go into their bodies, you know. And I'm I'm talking about food. I'm talking about wine. I'm talking about sex. These are areas of concern.
0: Hmm. I just had a very powerful mental image. Thank you for that. I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you see what I mean, but I think. But I think wine goes a step further. That, yeah. Uh, I mean, I said, I think in the beginning of our talk, I said that, that all my wines are very highly manipulated. And all wines are very highly manipulated. Those are not grapes in the glass. But no wine is as manipulated as any beer. And nobody ever gives brewers uh, you know, any crap about, about uh, because wine is more sacred than beer. Beer is for, I mean, winemakers drink beer because it's a thirst quencher and it's hot. They don't go home and slug down some cattern to quench their thirst. Uh,
0: I think you're turning a concept on its head of what wine really is. I mean, you're really kind of going back to the very premise and how the conversation should start.
1: Yeah, and, 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 of course, wine has a romantic aspect to it. I think a lot of times people will put a bottle of wine on the table instead of just Coca-Cola or milk or beer. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And But I think they're expecting, or at least I hope they're expecting, some some sort of transformative experience. And, you know, it's, the difference between wine and other beverages is it, it doesn't really need technology. You can just crush grapes, and that's it. You know, the yeast will find the juice, and they'll transform it into this profound thing. Grape juice really isn't the same as wine. Uh, you know, I'm in the Presbyterian Church, and I'm always giving those guys a hard time about uh, Welch's. You know, Welch was the guy that converted communion from wine to grape juice. But I'm sorry if I'm trying to have a profound experience Uh, that's sour and bitter, but also profound, you have to do it with red wine. You're just not going to get any of that out of grape juice, and you're not going to get it out of Coca-Cola. So there's a a sacred profundity in wine, and that's why it shows up in every religion, most of the time on the positive side. Like if you're Jewish and it's Passover, you have to drink four big glasses of wine. Um, that's, that's, that
0: I didn't know that I would convert it I would have converted a long time ago <laughs> um, wow it's it's um, it's awesome awesome intel so when you say transformative it's such a delicious word by the way
1: um well you know the yeast take grape juice right. and they transform right. it into wine but you know you don't
0: mean transformational experientially you don't mean that when you sit down but, but okay then I really have questions so when it comes to transformative quality of wine. Is it possible to get it from inexpensive wine, something that really sure. only meant to be quaffable?
1: Well, Dan Berger says that that wine, uh, that the price of a wine has to do with its rarity. Uh, there are price categories. I had a, a line called Cheapskate, and I was making really serious wines for $6 a bottle. I oh. I put my 2003 Cabernet to the uh, New World Wine Competition, but I didn't put it in the $6 category. I put it in the over $50 category, and I got a double goal. Now, if wow. you're looking for uh, Yellowtail down in that same price range, you probably won't even like this stuff because it's dry and it's, you know, it's serious wine. Uh, but if you look around certainly a trader goes there's plenty of really good wine under ten dollars Wow,
0: that's quite a revelation because conventional wisdom would say you kind of get what you pay for but it's not really i
1: don't think so although i think that's true in peter noir Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but but by and large the same if i the same wine that i will charge fifty dollars for because i have 200 cases of my cabernet if I had 200,000 cases, then I'd have to charge 15 bucks.
0: Yeah, interesting. So it's really economies of scale that plays a pivotal role in this.
1: That's what Dan says. I think he's kind of right. But on the other hand, uh, we were talking about Farniente Chardonnay. Yeah. And he said, this is back, this conversation was 30 years ago when it was $30. Mm-hmm. I think it's more like 100 now, but." <laughs> Dan said, this is a really good $30 Chardonnay, but I wouldn't want to have to sell it for six. Yeah. Because then it would be going up against the sweet Chardonnays like Gwinellen, and it's not like that. So, So to a certain extent, price in the grocery store can determine style.
0: So the mass market is what dictates it and protecting the brand placement in that category. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, let let me talk about the bifurcation of the wine industry. It's a really key point. So when I got in the industry in 1972, there were 400 wineries in the United States. All of them were nationally distributed, uh, and there was just one wine industry. It was kind of like uh, it used to be that you could go into Barnes & Noble or the equivalent into a bookstore, and you get books. There were. Mhm music was that way. I remember uh, my dad was on the Apollo project, so we were in daytona Beach Florida, and uh w r o d you'd turn that thing on and you'd get uh you know Frank Sinatra and then Bob Dylan and then uh the Beatles and uh y you, you know Jan and Dean and uh the Beach Boys, there were like 40 genres of popular music all on the same station, because they had to fill up the airtime, and that's all there was. Now, WROD is all hip hop all the time. This is called the diversity paradox, that the more choices you have at wholesale, the less, the more tight, they can just choose one little genre, and there's plenty of hip hop to fill up the airways. Mm-hmm. So and that's what's happened in grocery stores that the diversity that we see today is far less. So it's almost entirely dominated by 1000000 case wineries. So they make 95% of the wine, and they make your standard Merlot, your standard Cabernet, your standard Chardonnay, uh, your standard Sauvignon Blanc. There's about 15 categories, and they might have 40 or 50 Merlots, but they all taste exactly the same because that's what's required because Safeway wants to sell wine like milk. And milk is all supposed to taste the same. Even the soy milk. It's supposed to taste like milk. Uh, and so it's intentionally standardized. And then there's this tiny little fraction. Now, that's 65 wineries that, that dominate the, uh, the grocery store. Then you have 10,000 wineries. Growing like crazy all the time, these little two thousand case mom and pops in in Iowa and Alabama and the Finger Lakes, uh, that are doing the opposite. They're trying not to make wine that's like the grocery store. They're trying not to make Kendall Jackson Cabernet. Instead, they're making screwy wines that are more interesting. So they're always going to be unexpected. Uh, I make you know, I make Saint Laurent and Petit Monsang and and uh, uh, three kinds of Grenache and uh, just Norton, you know, you're never going to find a Norton on a grocery store shelf. But mine is really kind of interesting. So <laughs> that's, that's what I'm up to. I have my own little uh, style and every single wine maker that's uh, out there, has their own dream that they're trying to protect for just a handful of people, mostly local. My geeks are spread out all over the country, but most of the time it's it's somebody making La Crescent and Brianna and Marquette up in Iowa for the tourists from Des Moines. Um, and, you know, they might be doing other things. They might have a musical festival. they got to have a a really cool dog and uh, and they're trying to make a personal connection which you will never get. you're never going to have a personal connection with Robert Mondavi or just Jackson. I mean even well, when they, even before was, they died yeah. you really couldn't do yeah. it no. but, mm-hmm. but you can tune in to your local wineries and that's where it's happening as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, first of all, I've had the pleasure and very recent pleasure of tasting your various sateric varietals, and they have personalities to spare uniformly. I mean, obviously they're very interesting um, and very unique. Um, I'm gonna ask you later in the conversation what inspired those choices. You went, Okay. against the the convention again. You could have been making just as easily all kinds of Cabs and Pinots and Chardonnays. So this is a fascinating area that we need to flesh out. But the wines that I've tasted, unfortunately I drank, well, I don't know why I say unfortunately I drank them, all. fortunately for me. Um, so I can't share in this conversation with you the, the specifics we can't, um, but we will. Um, there's there's going to be other opportunities. But what I can say from very recent memory is that there, exceptionally harmonious, uh, tons of personality, tons of longevity. Uh, one of the bottles was open overnight and showed no signs of anything. Most
1: of our wines will last at least a week.
0: Yeah, that that blows my mind in and out of itself. That's mm-hmm. the value right there. Cause like, if you don't want to drink the whole bottle, and exactly. obviously it's going to change. in this, in this, I don't think I've ever had the wine around for a week. I mean, even the forgotten ones, I wouldn't drink it at that point. Yours are very unique that way. So, let's put a pin in that. I actually want to go back just because I'm curious. Well, just for me. If
1: if you don't mind, I actually have a couple of wines here.
0: Oh, that- do you? That's awesome.
1: Yeah, this one you know very well. That's the it's the spark. Yes, I do. That I know you're going to be jealous, but I'm just I'm super jealous. a little dry here.
0: Uh, I'm feeling deprived. I'm complaining, you guys, and you well, should be I'm, too. And if you, um, if you listening to this and you're thirsty, I know where you can find some wine. We'll tell you later in the broadcast, the website. But you know, Clark Smith, Smith Wines. You know that shouldn't be hard to find on the web. So let your fingers do the walking if you want some awesome juice. Winesmith wines. Winesmith wines, I'm sorry. Um, So I'm actually very, very curious about your background because um, I know you went to MIT briefly and then switched to UC Davis. Right. So, What inspired that? How did wine even show up in your world or the desire to go to UC Davis?
1: Well, uh, let's see. I, I was at MIT for two years and it was a fabulous experience. I had uh, all the heads of the departments teach the freshman courses. So I had, uh, you know, Noam Chomsky teaching me linguistics and Francis Crick teaching me molecular biology and, and, and DS Kemp teaching me chemistry and Lurie and Teuber teaching me psychology. There were like 12 of them. And they were all wow. really, really cool uh uh you know, career paths. And uh, and I also was a, a folk singer. We had a band called Pope Pius the Twelfth, and that was interesting too. So there was just all of these all of these possibilities and uh and 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 then in the junior year, I was a straight A student, but in the junior year they go, okay, now you have to pick one. Oops. And I said, well, okay, but I think I want to think about that a little bit. So I got a Bob Hagman's Peugeot and we wandered all over uh, Canada and Mexico and, and we had something like 40 US states and, uh, and I ended up kind of washing up on the beach in Berkeley. And- uh, Randomly. And I got a job in a liquor store and a guy walked up to me with a bottle of Palmasan Emerald Dry and asked me if it was any good. And I said, I don't know. I just got here. I I don't know anything about wine. Uh, and so I bought a bottle, took it home. This is 1971,
0: 72. Uh, I don't remember it uh,
1: year. It was all right. <laughs> OK. But I got curious. And, and so pretty soon, I'd taken home everything in the store. Mm-hmm. And then uh, continued on retail, I knew that there was the neat thing about this, I mentioned D. S. Kemp, mm-hmm. a chemistry teacher. And I always thought there was a kind of a sadness in the guy that he would read papers, passionate papers from the 19th century about chemistry, about, you know, oxygen versus phlogiston, you know. Com- theories and in the development of the periodic table and and he thought he was basically saying look discipline isn't any fun anymore <laughs> because we've got we got it all worked out you know you don't want to spend your life looking at you know the properties of silver three or some little chemistry backwater
0: yeah don't sound very sexy
1: yeah, no, uh, I can't say that about the computer programming, and I can't say that about molecular biology. Uh, there were certainly interesting things to do, but I was looking for something that was both scientific and artistic. I was really interested in the merger of those two—the you know, the art and science of something—to delve into the human soul using technical brushes. Uh, and the only two things I know that are really like that, where those two come together, are uh, music. Because uh, music, you think about music is invisible, right? And it's mm-hmm. not vicious. There's really no benefits to it, except people spend more annually, globally, spend more money on music than they do on pharmaceuticals of their disposable income.
0: Ooh, that- That's great. I was worried, especially with the recent press, that it's all about either pharmaceuticals, alcohol, or, I don't know, comfort foods. You know, music
1: speaks to them soul to soul. And and wine is like that, too. It's a form of art that assumes the shape of its container. So the art is, uh, it's captured in the liquid somehow. And it allows, I think, what winemaking really is is connecting the soul of a place to a human soul by rendering its grapes into liquid music
0: did, did you write it down anywhere because yeah, I'm,
1: that's actually the opening of my book.
0: <laughs> no, it's gorgeous,
1: and that's what we do as winemakers is we make that connection um, each of us in our own way so
0: so there you were,
1: uh, yeah, so there I was. And and I was starting to see something happen. And all of a sudden, in, in the early 70s, uh, well, actually, let me set this up a different way. I'm going to ask you a question. What was the average alcohol of a California wine in
0: 1960? Well, I know it was low. I'm going to just shoot a dart and say 11, 12? 18.5. What?
1: Ever since Prohibition, the entire California wine industry has been about Port and Sherry for 30 years.
0: I guess I just don't know what I'm talking about because I kind of was under the impression, not necessarily 60s per se, but early winemaking, some of the most classic bottlings. It probably, as I think about more 70s and 80s, there were a lot of them were in, in uh, alcohol was pretty low.
1: That's right. That's right. Well, we're going to get uh, but it. Now, European style table wine is what we were doing before Prohibition.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Okay.
1: But once Prohibition hit, people just wanted the alcohol and the sugar. You know, nighttime toddies for little old ladies. It wasn't much of an industry. And of course, Sacramento wine.
0: Right. So we're talking 60s, like all 60s or early 60s? I'm saying
1: 1960. That was the situation.
0: Got it. Got it.
1: So now I'm going to ask you what was the average alcohol in 1970?
0: I'm going to stick to maybe i'll take it to 12 13 but it was definitely on the low side i mean i i'm not speaking 70 per se i'm saying 70s so
1: 1970 11
0: oh i was right the first time yeah.
1: you were right the first time and and the reason <laughs> the thing that changed everything
0: yeah
1: so Peter a we have to go back to world war ii and if it hadn't been for hitler Uh, We never would have devoted the resources to Split the Atom uh, to win the war. Okay. And then after the war, of course, we were looking for peacetime uses of nukes. And one of them was uh, 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 an integrity testable, sterile filter that would allow you to bottle off dry wine without it being a high explosive.
0: And when did that happen?
1: Well, it was first developed by the Germans in the 50s. Uh-huh. Uh, they would take plastic sheets and stick them into atomic piles and the alpha particles would poke holes. Then they'd stick them in a bath of fluoric acid and the holes would get bigger until they got exactly the size they wanted to exclude, let's say, a yeast or a bacterium. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then they'd neutralize the acid. And this is a company called Nuclepore. And before that, there were only three ways to get sweet wine. Port Sherry, because the alcohol combination of the alcohol and the sugar kills the yeast. Botrytis wines, but those were very rare and very expensive. Can you tell me what the what the third one was, the only way that you could get sweet table wine prior to World War Two. I don't know. Champagne.
0: Really, I, I would not have guessed in a million years. I'm glad. Uh, it's
1: well, nobody a knows this, but <laughs> champagne, and this is—we're going to get to talking about this. Oh
0: wait, wait, wait! I actually I should have known that because, hello, Russia was buying all this cloyingly sweet stuff from France yeah. early on. That's where that's coming from.
1: Right. So what happened was uh, once we got decent bottles that could hold the pressure, this is about 400 years ago uh Dom Perignon, you know, drinking stars and all that stuff. Uh, they were able to get a fermentation in the bottle and then disgorge the yeasts out and stick in tons of, of uh, oh, sugar. Uh, beet sugar. Yeah. yeah. So, so they that. had three grades.
0: Mm-hmm. They had
1: sec, demi-sec, and du.
0: Right, right. So
1: what was the residual sugar of the dry wine? Sec. Six uh-huh. percent wow. That's twice the sugar of sour homo Zedel. Uh-huh. All right, and then the demisek was nine percent and the dew was 12 percent. Well, uh, it turns out that when you shove that sugar in there and then put a cork in it, that the CO2 pressure keeps the yeast from reforming. That was his invention. And Louis Fourteenth went nuts. Mm-hmm. This is 1700. The whole court, the Sun King's court, just started guzzling champagne because it was the only sweet wine you could get, and people liked sugar.
0: That's fascinating. Right. Right. I bet life expectancy a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, less alcohol than than port. Uh, yeah. So, so then, uh, so then, here's what happened. This is very funny. Uh, about. A hundred and fifty years ago, the British came to the French, and they said, uh, "Well, you know, we we'd like something with a little less sugar, if you don't mind." <laughs> the French pushed back and they said, "But it, it would taste terrible." <laughs> they said, "Well, we'll give you pound sterling if you do." Very well, we will take your English money. I- <laughs> It's terrible champagne, but we will not give it a beautiful French name like demi du We will call it, and it sounds really bad in French, and this is the only English appellation, English language appellation in France. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're just getting started here. So, so then, uh, and you have to remember that, I think, why were they doing this and why be, and, and the answer is that champagne is the worst wine in the world. It's bland and thin and sour. But if you put tons of sugar in it, it's really good. So, uh, so then what happened is the British came back and they said, well here you now, we'd like a drier stew. So what did the French say? But only an animal would drink such wine well we'll take your english money but we will call it brute which means <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so funny. the so the brute designation originally was an insult to the british for having such shitty palates that they would drink this sour wine still one and a half percent sugar okay and uh, so basically the french were telling us that brute champagne is horrible agree. Now I love don't get me wrong. Uh, 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 recent vintages of Dom Perignon are kind of transforming. But by and large, I don't like French champagne because it it doesn't have a finish. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palo Exposure featuring Alona Thompson.